0: You know, one of the major breakthroughs in Martin Luther in Germany that brought about the Reformation was basically the doctrine of trusting Jesus for everything. Martin Luther, uh, he was a monk and a scholar, and uh, for many years he'd been trying to find peace with God through his own works and through his own prayers and through his own religiosity. And no matter how hard he tried, he couldn't find peace with God. He was trying to work up a righteousness or a level of holiness that would be acceptable to God and not, allow, not only allow him to know that he would go to heaven, but, but also allow him to receive the blessings from God. If only he could reach this level. Well, the more he tried, the more he failed. Until, in his mind, he began to see... That when the Bible spoke about righteousness, it spoke about a righteousness that comes from God. Luther realised that in order to be saved and have a relationship with God, it wasn't his own righteousness, his own holiness, his own prayers, his own giving, his own pilgrimages or or anything like that that would get him into God's favour and blessing, but he realised that righteousness, being right with God, was a gift that was bestowed by God and that all he needed to do was trust and believe and that gift would be his. Well, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 28 to 3, I'd like to read that to you this evening. Well, I'll start from verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, 1 Corinthians verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised that God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God, but by by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This speaks a lot about this trusting of Jesus. Jesus. It shows that, that, generally speaking, those that God has called have uh, nothing in them to boast about, uh, so, that, so that they're the foolish things of the world, or they're the, uh, the, the shameful, the weak things of the world, the despised things of the world. In other words, in this picture, you've got somebody who says, I've got nothing, I'm nobody, Nobody even thinks I'm anybody. I've got nothing to bring to God of my own. I'm a weak person. But God chooses this weak person and places them in a relationship with Christ. And then Christ becomes something to these people. He becomes their wisdom. He becomes their righteousness, their relationship with the Father, He becomes their sanctification, and sanctification is all about becoming more like God. Jesus becomes that. Jesus becomes their redemption. And so in this picture, uh, it's not that we redeem ourselves... It's not that we are working hard to become somehow more righteous. It's not that we are trying to figure it all out out, about how we're going to live day to day and follow the Lord and and how we're going to uh, do the commandments of God. But Jesus has become these things to us. In other words, we go to Jesus for wisdom and he gives it to us. We go to Jesus for our righteousness and he gives it to us. We go to Jesus to work things in our lives, our sanctification, and he gives it to us. And so that whatever achievements we seem to have, spiritually speaking, however close to the Father we get, however much of the Holy Spirit is evident in our lives, however holy we may become on earth, There's no boasting because all of it came from Jesus. You see, Luther, he was looking on the inside for his holiness. He was looking on the the inside for his redemption. He was looking on the inside for his wisdom. Luther was self-obsessed for so many years. And there's a lot of Christians today in the Western world that are spiritually self-obsessed. They're obsessed with their own faith. I just need to exercise my faith. I'm the man of God for the hour. You're the woman of God for the hour. It's all within me. I can do it. I can, but they're obsessed with their, their own spiritual ability. And like the Corinthians they, uh, they vie with one another to show who's the most spiritual in the house, who has the most gifts, who's closer to the Lord, who knows the mind of the Lord. You see, they're self-obsessed spiritually and that's what Luther was like until he met with the living God and then he became Christ-obsessed, obsessed with God and trusting in him drawing upon him for everything that was needed, seeking from him everything that was needed, no longer looking inside himself for the answer. He looked to Jesus, the throne of God, for the answer, downloading directly from the Lord day by day and week by week what he needed to do the Lord's bidding. If we turn now to Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. There's an echo here. Well, I'll read from 7. I'm getting the the passages mixed. Philippians 3, 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I counted all things to be loss in the view of of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through, Christ, through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. So here's Paul. Now, if you know anything about Paul, he was a Pharisee amongst Pharisees. I mean, you didn't get any more religious than Paul. He was one of the greatest Pharisees of his time. He excelled in his religiosity, in his devotions to God. But then he met with Jesus on the road to Damascus and he realized that all his efforts to be religious, all his super spirituality, all the the attainments as a Pharisee that he felt that he had were absolutely nothing when he came face to face with Christ, fell on the floor and realised that everything he had tried to achieve spiritually was of no value and he counted it for the loss because now he had found somebody that was of all value And he compared himself and his actions with Christ that appeared to him and realised that he had nothing that could compare with what Christ had. And so what he wanted was from now on, Christ is gain and everything else is loss. A righteousness, not of his own, but a righteousness that came from God. In other words, he realised in an instant that all his future relationships with, relationship with God, his acceptance by the Father, all of these were dependent no longer on himself, but dependent on what Jesus had done for him. It was an external righteousness. He was no longer trying to work it up on the inside, trying to somehow be somebody that, that was worthy of God, a super spiritual person. He was no longer looking on the inside and saying, it's all there, I just need to unpack it myself. He was no longer looking on the inside of the Pharisee, Paul, but now he was looking to Jesus and he realised in that moment, as we would read in Hebrews, that Jesus was now the author and the finisher of his Christian faith. Before that, Paul felt that he was the author and the finisher of his faith in God, and that if he did, if he did enough, it would be acceptable to God. Martin Luther in, in those Reformation days, he thought that he was meant to be the author and the finisher of his faith, and somehow, if he tried, he would get there. But both of them, when they met with Jesus, realized that it was something that they could never do themselves that Relationship with God was a gift right from the start, right to the end. Everything was a gift and everything was found in Jesus. In uh, Colossians chapter 3 in verse 1. Colossians chapter 3. If I can, here we go. Listen to Paul again, who used to be the great Pharisee. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things which are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, dead to impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. So here, Paul again is saying, get your eyes off yourself. Stop being so inward looking. So many Christians are so inward inward looking. They're they're navel gazing, always wondering what's going on on the inside, what they are and what they aren't, what they're achieving, what they're not achieving, how spiritual they are today or how spiritual they're not, what adjustments they must make, how guilty they feel because they haven't made them. And so these Christians, their whole focus is on the inside of them. And how am I going to deal with this? And at most, they're like, Lord, look at this. Look, Come and have a look, Lord. Look at all this that's going on the inside. Look at how I'm thinking. Can you help me, Lord? Can can you come along and help me? And they are inward-looking. But here, Paul says, don't be inward-looking. Be outward-looking. Stop looking at what's going on the inside of you, and fix your attention on what's going on in the throne room of God where Christ is. In other words, if your attention becomes locked on Jesus, who he is, what he's got for you, that he is the Alpha and the Omega, that all the answers are not found inside you with a little help from Jesus, but Jesus actually is the answer, and has the supply, and has the strength, and has the ability to deal with all things, and as you begin to focus on him, and your focus is heavenly focused, then you begin to find that things will change. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, expresses how this change goes on. When you become Christ-focused... And begin to trust him instead of trying to work it out for yourself with a little bit of help from him. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So here we are, unveiled face. We're beholding the glory of the Lord. What are we doing? We're beholding who Jesus is. We're beholding what he has done for us. We're beholding him in the word. The whole of the scriptures have one message, and that message is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said, you don't understand the Old Testament Pharisees because you don't realise that the whole Old Testament speaks about me. It doesn't just speak about the, the ways of the Lord, but it speaks about who the Lord is. Everything in Scripture is Christ-centred. Everything in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation points you towards a person, the name of Jesus. And so here, what Paul is saying is that we are beholding the glory of the Lord. In other words, as we do what he said earlier and keep our minds on things that are above where Christ is, as we focus on Jesus, minister to Jesus in our worship as we were doing earlier today, as we speak to Jesus, put our hope in Jesus, take our troubles to Jesus, as we go to him about everything that we need on the inside, on the outside, in circumstances, as we go to the Lord, meditate on him, reflect on him, things begin to change on the inside. You see, your righteousness with the Father is Jesus. In Galatians, it says we're clothed with Christ. You see, this is all external. You're not, we are in Christ and Christ has done it all for us. And when we focus our attention on Jesus and our hope and trust in daily life on Jesus, something happens on the inside of us. As we focus on him, what happens is the born again nature inside us awakens. How many of you know, in order to be in the kingdom of God, you must be born again? It's not just human faith trusting Jesus, but when you trust in Jesus, a miracle happens on the inside of you. You are born again. You are a new creation. God takes out the old heart and puts in a new heart. You're born again Jesus says, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. It's called the new birth. So you are born again if you believe in Jesus in your heart here today. That means that deep down inside you resides a new nature. Not the old nature made good. Not the old nature brushed up a bit and given a little bit of help. But a brand new nature. Uh, heart, a brand new heart. God is not into heart surgery. God is into heart transplant. He takes out the old legalistic, pharisaical, religious, self-centred heart that's in you. He takes it out and he puts in you a new heart, a heart that responds to God, a heart that responds to Jesus, A, a, a miracle heart that's on the inside. And what we have to do is transfer our attention to the old ways. Because the old you is gone. The old you died with Christ. You're no longer that person that you were, but you're a new creation. But your mind has to catch up with what God has done. When you give your life to Jesus, you don't don't often know what's going on. You're just trusting him. You don't realise that you've been given a brand new nature. The whole of the Christian life is a process of self-discovery of finding out what God has placed deep within you, a new nature and getting off the old mentality and the rags of the old life and and, and to allow that which is in you to come forth. Now, as you focus on Jesus, as you trust in him, as you put all your eggs in his basket, not just for salvation, but day by day and week by week, As you understand that he's the one that has the power and he's the one that has the answer every day, every week, he's in total control. As you focus on him, something on the inside of you is awakened, ignited, triggered. The new nature comes alive when you focus on Jesus. When you focus on all your problems and the enemy and all these these things, then the new nature tends just to quietly uh, uh wait there until it is stimulated now jesus now i, I was reading uh, about a cycle uh, a psycho a psychological um paper one well, paper's a bit too strong but it was speaking about students and how they had done a test on students and and how they view what what they're going to achieve and It was, where was their locus of control? This was the phrase. Where was the student's locus of control? What does that mean? Well, where did they think that their life and its success resided? Now, some students had what they called an external locus of control. And what that meant is they're like, well, who's in control of my life and my destiny? And they had what we call an external locus of control. And what this meant was, is that they felt that their success in life was dependent on everybody around them. Their success was dependent on those that were around them, and their failure was dependent on those around them. So if they failed an exam, they would say, well, it was because the teacher didn't teach me what, what I needed or it's because the examiners gave me a wrong paper. If they didn't get promotion at work, it would be because the boss didn't like them for no reason at all. Have you ever met people like that? Uh, in, in, their, in their heart of hearts, they genuinely believe... That people are the answer to their problems. That people can give them what they need or people can block what they want. They have an external locus of control. There's like, well, I can't help it. People have blocked me. I can't help it. People are helping me. It's down to them, not down to me. That's a terrible position to be in because you tend to get very bitter with people because you expect so much of them. And then when they don't deliver... You don't blame yourself, you blame them. High expectations of other people because you believe that your future, your success, lies with them. An external locus of control. But other students were seen to have an internal locus of control. And that was seen as a positive thing. In other words, this student, if they didn't pass their exams, they wouldn't blame anybody else. They would immediately say to themselves, well, I didn't study hard enough, obviously. Well, I must have had a bad day. Uh, they, they, they have this attitude that I can do it and it's all down to me. If I keep trying, I'll get there. I can't rely on anybody. It's down to, it's down to myself in this life. And, and the only person I can rely on is me and, and, and I'm just going to have to keep trying. I'm going to have to keep pressing and eventually I'll get there. But it, it's, it's down to myself. I don't know if you know anybody like that. Very self-sufficient Um, that blame themselves if things go wrong, but also take the credit if things go right. Where do you lie in these two types of people? Are you somebody that thinks, you know, if only I'd had better parents, if only I'd had a better school, if only I'd been with the right friends, if only I'd had money, if only they'd given me this job? Are you somebody that, that sees your future and it's out there and it was the circumstances, not yourself? Is that the way you're wired? Or are you wide where I'm going to do it? It's all down to me. Uh, if I fail, it'll be with me. If I succeed, and, and you're working constantly on the inside, and if people help you find but don't rely on them, where are you on that spectrum? The people that did the psychological analysis believed that those with an internal locus of control, who thought it was down to them, uh, were were, were better fit for life because they they would be more proactive, they would go for things instead of others that would sit back and blame everybody or wait for everybody to, uh, to help them get where they wanted. But I want to say that I think both of those, internal focus of control, it's all down to you, your success. Or external focus of control, it's the circumstances, it's the people. I think both of those are not Christian. What I've been trying to bring us to tonight in some way is this, is that we don't need an internal focus of control, it's all down to me. You'll end up being a Luther or a Paul Pharisee. You'll end up thinking it's all down to you and you will disappoint yourself again and again. Or, if you do very well, you'll become puffed up. You'll think higher of yourself than you should. You'll be like Paul warned about. He says, look, he doesn't choose many of us uh, that that, that are good because we get puffed up. Or, Or he says, don't put a new believer into leadership too quickly. Why? Because they've yet to get that locus of control focused up. They might think that the anointing of God on their life is because of them. Have you ever met somebody that thinks the anointing of God on their life is because of them? This is very dangerous when someone sees prays for someone and a miracle takes place, no, because the miracle is wonderful, but the, it's the way the person who prayed for handles it. All of a sudden, we've seen it many, many times, God uses somebody in the miraculous and all of a sudden they think they're somehow better than everybody around them. After all, God used me in the miraculous, not you. It's the one Corinthian syndrome where everybody was saying, look how God used me. Ah, but look how God used me. Yeah, but look how God used me. As if God using them was somehow down to the fact that they deserved it. Internal locus of control as a Christian. When you do well, you'll end up being a bit blown up and a bit boastful. Or when you're struggling, you'll be guilt ridden. You'll blame yourself you'll think God doesn't want anything to do with you because after all, I'm not the Christian I should be and, and it's down to me. And, and, I, and some people are not even in the church today because they don't believe they can live up to what they think they should live up to, to be a Christian. They can't cope with the pressure, the internal pressure. They've had enough. They've, they've tried to be someone that they're not and, and they've given up because it's too difficult. An internal locus of control. Or Christians with an external focus. And these Christians are always the ones that are church hopping. Because they go to a church and they're there and and they have these high expectations of what Christians should be like. And their high expectations what the Christian should be like, or what what, what the pastors should be like, or the cell leaders should be like, or the preachers should be like. They come in with all these uh, all these sort of like expectations, because this church is gonna fulfill all my needs, and, and this preaching is gonna be great every week, and the pastors will be there for me whenever I need it. And this is a cell group, and the cell leader will be for me and and be there at two o'clock in the morning whenever I need them. They'll keep their phone on and, and, and they're going to be there for me. I know I'm overdoing it a bit and it can be a little bit more subtle than that, but it's this type of attitude. And so after a while, they begin to see that people aren't quite what they wanted them to be and that the cell leader didn't quite give them the cell leadership that they expected and and, and the people that they met at church weren't quite as friendly as they expected and after a while they get stumbled because they're putting so much of their hope in other people. This can happen in uh, relationships. Someone can fall in love with somebody and then suddenly that person becomes the external locus of control. I've met him or I've met her. And now everything's going to be all right because this boy, this girl's going to meet my needs. It's all going to be amazing. We're going to get married next Thursday. I only met her last (laughs) week, but it doesn't matter because the Lord's told me and everything's going to be great. And then they get married. and Then a year later, they're in massive counselling. Why? Because the locus of control was this person is going to supply all my needs according to this person's riches that they don't have. <laughs> we know who's going to supply all our needs. So the external locus, everybody else is letting me down. And you get, in, and you get out of relationship. You can't form friendships. You can't form relationships. You can't stay in a church because uh, you, you've got such high expectations that they will meet your need and they can't or the internal, where you're so self-absorbed about how good you think you are or how bad you think you are, both are paralysed. So what I'm saying this evening is that we need a Christ-centred locus of control. We need to look outside ourselves in order for the inside of ourselves to be changed. We need to go and, and say, right, I'm going to focus on Jesus people are there and I hope I get along with them and everything, but I'm not going to focus on what people do and what they don't do. We all suffer from this at times. I know I'm going to be disappointed by people, but also I think there'll be times when I'm surprised by people in a good way. But I'm not going to put all my eggs in that basket. And then when when people let me down, I won't take it so badly that I'll never want to speak to them again. I'll be able to take it in my stride. Neither am I going to be so centred on me and what's going on the inside of me, navel-gazing, always wondering, always thinking, me, 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 how am I doing? Oh, this is there. What does this mean for me? Me, 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 which which is a form of bondage. But I'm going to take my attention and I'm going to go and start trusting Jesus. You know, he's the one with authority. I was speaking to the Holy Spirit and I was praying and saying, Holy Spirit, please, Come, come into my life for fresh, micromanage, get more involved in my life. Come in our services with more power. And I was asking him to get more involved, and I haven't worked this out yet. But it was, it was as if I felt him speak to me and say, "Why are you asking me? I only go where I'm sent." I thought, "What?" Now I know you can say, "Come, Holy Spirit." I know you say, "Please hold." I understand that relationship, but it was interesting. Came right out of the blue. Why are you asking me? I only go where I'm sent. And I thought, what, if that was the Holy Spirit, I thought, he's pointing me to Jesus. He's saying, you want me? Go to the one who sends me. And so I thought, that's interesting. I thought, yes, it was Jesus that said, I'm going to go and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. and He's going to come in my place. And when he comes, he'll bring from me and he won't say anything that I haven't already said. And he won't do anything that I haven't already said he's to do. And I thought, saw refresh the servant nature of the Holy Spirit. And I thought, you're right, Holy Spirit, if that was the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, Lord. Suddenly I've changed. I'm like, Lord Jesus, you have the authority to send the Holy Spirit or to withhold the Holy Spirit. You have the power, the commands in your mouth, So I'm coming to you, Jesus, and I'm asking you, will you send more of your Holy Spirit? And that began a chain of changes in my mentality to the Lord Jesus. And I found myself going to him more and more not just God in general. Yes, I go to the Father for my needs in the name of Jesus. Yes, I still fellowship with the Holy Spirit. But I began I began to feel that, hey, wait a second, the answer's in the throne. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm looking at things on the earth and saying, God, will you sort this? Will you sort that? But actually, I should be focused on where Jesus is. On his personality on who he is and what he's done and begin to meditate on how powerful this man God is whose name is Jesus. I mean, go to the Father by all means uh, and I, we can teach on that. But didn't the Father say, I've given all the authority to my son? I know it's not a very good illustration. I don't recommend that you, you watch God Father One. Although I have watched God Father One and I do enjoy it. It's not all, all, all wonderful and Christian. But there is a time when... Um, Uh, Michael the godfather's son is going to take over the family business and people aren't speaking to Michael they're in a room and Michael is saying something uh, but they're ignoring him and speaking to his father behind him because they still think that the authority resides with his father and the father is just pottering around and doing things and they keep speaking to him and he keeps saying stop talking to me. Why are you coming to me? Michael's looking after the family business now. Whatever needs to be said, he will say it. And so in that position, this Godfather is no longer saying, why are you asking me? No, I've given my authority to my son. Now, of course, we can go to the Father. Jesus tells us to go to the Father, so don't take this to an extreme. It's always difficult when you speak about Trinitarian terms, isn't it? Because you can go to extremes. But the Father said... All authority on earth and heaven, I'm giving to Jesus. I'm giving it to the Lord. And so in many ways, when we go to the Father and we should, he's saying, well, if you want the power, if you want the decision-making person on this, if you, if you want a decision on this, if you want some authority, if you want some intervention, well, you know, go to my son. He's the one that's on the throne. I've given him all my power and authority and, and the name which is above every name. So, uh, you know, he's the one to go to. It's amazing what power Jesus has. I was meditating on how much power Jesus has. All power. I mean, he's amazing how much he loves us. It's amazing how close he wants to be to us. What a friend we have in Jesus. But have you ever met somebody powerful on earth and you've been a little bit intimidated by them? It could be in any field. It could be in the business field, the media field, the sporting field, the political field. And, and, And you meet them and you're a little bit in awe of them because they carry something of authority and weight, well, I think we need to be a little bit more, grow in our awe of Jesus, because he can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. And it's amazing how sometimes he withholds his power. It's quite scary how he doesn't intervene sometimes. He could intervene in every single... He could stop these hurricanes in their tracks. You know, you've got to think about, I was thinking to myself in the car as I was meditating on this, I was thinking, do you know what, I don't think like Jesus at all. I, th- I think that we've put Jesus in this nice, cosy, Western Christian package, where Jesus is, 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 is all the time just friendly Jesus, meek and mild. And I began to think, actually, Jesus is making incredible executive decisions about people's lives every moment of the day. I mean, he's making executive decisions about the weather, executive decisions about nations. I mean, he can do whatever he wants, through whom or whatever he wants. He can turn the hearts of the king one way or the other. He, he can have whatever influence he wants at all in any way. Wow. Jesus is Lord. He's got authority. He's the answer And so when he doesn't respond, there's something going on. Think of the people in the Bible, I preached on this, about who were persistent with the Lord. Think of the uh, um, Syrophoenician woman who tried to break through to Jesus to get a healing for his daughter and and, and she went to him and uh, he refused to answer her. That's not the nice Jesus that we think. Refused to answer her, ignored her. Yet she wouldn't let him go. Why? Because she knew that she had, he had the answer for her needs and he pressed, she pressed in. She got in his face and then he, then he slapped her down by saying, it's not good to give the children's bread to the dogs. The dogs. But she pressed on in and said, yeah, well, even the dogs get the crumbs. And then, God, then Jesus, the man of authority, who could have healed her in a moment and stopped her from going through all this, said, what great faith. Isn't it amazing that we can go to the Lord and get a result? Especially if it says, well, we can get a result. We can petition the Lord, Jesus on the throne. We can ask him to intervene. We can put it in his hands. We can ask him to work by his Holy Spirit in our lives. I mean, is there nothing he cannot do? He can do everything. That's why we should trust in Jesus, not just for our sins. That's the beginning. Hey, if you can trust him to get into heaven, you can trust him to sort you out on earth. I mean, I mean he's there. I mean, I mean, you go to people with power, don't you? You go to the bank for a bank loan because they have the power to give you financial power for something that you want. Or you go to a lawyer or a judge for justice. And you go throughout life, you go to people that are perceived to have authority and power so that you can get a result. Well, Jesus can give us the result. And we can trust in him. And when we're focusing on him and going to him and speaking to him about it and trusting him, even when things aren't going as planned, we know he's in control. It's trusting him when he intervenes as much as trusting him when he doesn't intervene. It's going to him as your source and having this external Christ-centered locus of control as they bring it to a close. No longer are you looking to everybody else to do what you need them to do. Oh, if only my boss gives me a raise, if, 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 if only uh, I get into this place, if only they make the right decision for me, if only the decision goes my way, uh, I'm putting my hope in, in what people around me can do. I, 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 I'm getting close to people with money. Why? Because perhaps they'll share a little bit of the money. I'm getting close to people with power and influence. Why? Because perhaps some of that power and influence will come my way. That's a recipe for disaster or the internal, I'm going to do it, I'm trying harder. But now, all of a sudden, you're going to the Lord about everything. And you're knowing that he's in control, and you're knowing that as you reflect on him and meditate on him and get to know him and realise he's not at all like you think. If I, can, if I can leave you with one message, all of you, Jesus is not at all. Not at all all like you think he is. It's day one of discovery. The moment you think you understand Jesus, you've plateaued, you've finished already. The moment you begin to realise that, that there is so much about this man who is God and rules the universe, and as you begin to see his tenderness, as well as his awesome power you begin to discover who Jesus really is and not who you've projected him to be as I begin to discover who Jesus is and not who I we're far too fast and loose with the master we don't realize if we were following him on earth we'd be offended nearly every day we'd be shocked every day we wouldn't understand what was going on why did he do that why didn't he do that why did he say that? What's going on? I mean, we need to pr- approach the Gospels brand new and not see Jesus as he's been handed down in our various traditions. Jesus has handed down by the Anglican tradition. Jesus has handed down by the word faith tradition. Jesus has handed down by the Pentecostal tradition. Jesus has handed down by the Catholic tradition. But we need to go and we need to come afresh and say, Holy Spirit, can you show me who Jesus is? And not over, over feminize him. Men, if you, have struggle, if you struggle relating to Jesus, then uh, understand how powerful he is and how he's making massive executive decisions every day, withholding his power, giving his power, saying yea, saying nay. I mean, this man is on fire. He's on the throne room of God and he knows what he's doing, all power, you know. So let's get some balance and, and, and let, let's see, we talk about the Lion of Judah. Yes, know him as the Lamb, but for God's sake, grow up and know him as the Lion. So many Christians, they know him as the Lamb because they think they can control a Lamb. And they talk, sing about the Lion, but I tell you what, when you begin to get inklings of Jesus the Lion, it's terrifying. Terrifyingly wonderful and glorious. We need to expand our minds from this charismatic narrowing of who Jesus is into a mode that we can control. And allow him, I can't do it when I'm preaching, I'm just pointing you to Christ. Because when you begin to focus on him, come to him, meditate on him, make him your locus of control because it ain't happening if he's not in it. And if something's a problem, you go to him. And if something's not working on the inside, you go to him and he will work with you. He will partner with you. If you speak to him, he'll listen. Speak the word, Lord. Just speak the word, Lord. What do you want the Lord to speak into your life? You want him to speak the right word, don't you? Just speak it, Lord. I've been thinking about that. Just speak it. I've been praying, Lord, just speak it. Speak the word of authority and everything will change. Speak, Lord. Speak into Sunday. In the the morning when I was in the car, I was saying, Lord, speak into the day, Lord. I don't know what, speak spiritually into the congregation. I'm not speaking about preaching now so much as speak blessing over Kensington Temple. Speak divine order over our ministry. (laughs) Intervene. Let words of command, Lord, come out of your mouth. Speak the word and it's going to take place. Speak the command that your fathers will be done in our lives. Speak the command into the family situation. Speak. Don't withhold, Lord. Speak, speak, speak. Speak. Verbalise. Say it, it will be done. And when he speaks, it might not happen. But when he speaks, it will be done. And it will be. I want the Lord to speak into our lives. I want the Lord to speak into our circumstances. I want the Lord to speak into our hearts. I want the Lord to speak into our minds. I want the Lord to speak into our bodies. I want the Lord to speak. I want God to open the Lord Jesus to open his mouth and begin to decree divine orders into your life, my life, Kensington Temple. I want him to speak the blessing, speak it into our lives that we can confess it. I'm just trying the best way I can to impart to you that Jesus is the answer and that we should throw ourselves at him. Not a figment of our imagination or a projected image, but open our minds, free your mind and let him be free and you will find that you will be transformed.